This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hi, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. I am solo today on the podcast. Both Steve and Terry are are taking a break, but I do have some very special guests with me. I have Dr. Paul Chamberlain on the line. I also have Chris Price. They're here with me today because we're talking about a book that has just come out that I had the privilege of participating with them in called Everyday Apologetics, Answering Common Objections to the Christian Faith. I really love this book, and it was a great joy to be a part of, because one of the things that I noticed is as soon as I got into the area of apologetics was that the amount of resources that are available on an everyday level that just anybody could get into, it's surprisingly few. There's not a lot of resources in that area. And I I quickly began to realize, you know, much more needs to be done in this area. And so, we're going to get into this book in a moment and talk about why we wrote it and why I think this is such a great resource for people. But before we do, I think it's worth mentioning and and talking about that today, uh, in fact, this morning when I woke up, I received news that Ravi Zacharias had passed away. Now, we mentioned on the last podcast that he was suffering from cancer and that things were looking dire and many people were basically sending him their goodbyes with hashtag thank you Ravi. I wanted to take a moment First of all, to welcome you to the AC Podcast. We're glad that you're with us. But I want to begin by asking, what was Ravi's influence on you? Because I have a feeling that that Ravi's influence has a lot to do with why this book even came about. And so, maybe we could start with you, Chris. You want to start by talking about Ravi's influence on you, and then we'll we'll move to you, Paul. For sure. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be on with both of you guys. And uh, yeah, I received the news this morning on my social media feed and I wasn't shocked, but I was saddened because I think back to my journey as a new believer growing in the Lord, growing in my understanding of Christianity, Ravi Zacharias played a huge part. He was the guy that introduced me to the field of Christian apologetics. So I became a Christian when I was about 20 years old. And at the time I was a janitor working a night shift, waxing floors by myself. And so I would listen to MP3s. And one of the speakers I listened to nonstop all the time repetitively was Ravi Zacharias. And through him, I came to recognize that the Christian faith is not only intellectually credible, but existentially satisfying uh, in so many different ways. And his approach and his passion and his storytelling ability captivated me as a new believer and really in some ways set the trajectory of my life in ministry and how I would approach topics and how I would wrestle through objections and how I would interact with young people and non-believers. And so he was a huge, huge influence on my life through his books, through his speaking, through his examples, through his Q&As, all of that stuff. What about you, Paul? If I understand correctly, you actually worked 
with Ravi for a while there. Tell us a little bit of your experience with him and the impact he made on you. Well, yeah, yeah. And thanks also, Andy, for having both of us on the program today. It's really great to be with you guys, both of you. It is a very significant day in the life of the world of Christianity around the world. There's very few people who are known as widely around the world as Ravi Zacharias. And this is the day that he has been taken home. Uh, so it's a very, very significant day. I mean, I had heard of Ravi most of my life, since I was 19, 20 years old, somewhere in there. Um, and uh, at that time, I, found I had a lot of doubts about my Christian faith, huge, huge doubts, but I couldn't get answers from anywhere. And there wasn't really much apologetics being done. There were a handful of, of writers and speakers I was introduced to back then, one of whom was Ravi. But then later on, as you say, uh, Andy, I had the opportunity to go work with him for a little while. And what I discovered about Ravi is not only is he just a real true gentleman, he's a very ready smile, very encouraging, a really, really nice guy, uh, all of that. And if, if you meet him, you can see it in him when he's in public, and but when you meet him in private, he's the very same way. He's also a real master communicator. And I used to uh, watch him and say, what is it about this guy? And then I'd listen to him communicate, and I thought, he has a way of putting things that is so precise and so clean, but it's also uh, creative in a way that captures your attention. And so he would, he would have people listening to him that really knew nothing about apologetics. And he was speaking over their heads in some, some cases, and yet they were still enthralled by it and taking him in and learning from him. Paul, you said there was one time a meeting that you and, and a group of people had with Ravi, and he said something there that really impacted you and stayed with you. What was that? Just one quick story here. He was talking uh, with this very small group of us about a, a large debate he'd been in the night before uh, with an atheist fellow beside him, and he was there. And he got a phone call up again from a, a young man who phoned in, and he was uh, during the debate, and he was really angry at God because his sister, who was a young mom, had just died of cancer, leaving her kids and her husband behind. And what do you say to me, he said. And uh, Ravi said, well, you know what? I really want to empathize with you and sympathize with you. I've, I face death. I know what it's like. He said, the first thing I need to tell you is that atheism has nothing to say to you. And he says, the atheist beside me kind of nodded in agreement. He says, according to atheism, your sister lived, she'll die, she will rot, and that's all that will happen to her. He says, Christianity, however, has much more to say. And he says, Christianity never promised any of us a life free of suffering. It just doesn't give you that promise. What it does tell us about is a God and a Savior, Jesus, who understands our suffering because he's experienced suffering himself greater than we ever will. And he promises to walk through us with our suffering and if, if need be, meet us on the other side. That's the message I can tell you from Christianity. And you know what? I found that so effective and so powerful. I actually memorized those points and I've used them in my own lectures over the years many times. And that's just one. There's a number of other stories he shared with us where people would come up with these questions. And he had a way of cutting through a lot of stuff. Two or three, four points, he'd make the points, uh, and he'd do it in a very gracious way. And I thought, what a great representative of Christianity he is around the world, which may be partly why God chose to use him in such big ways. Uh, he spoke to world leaders and state prayer breakfasts, and just you name it, he was there. You know, that was one of the things that I, too, had learned from Ravi early on was Yes, he gave great answers, but more than that, he gave them in a very loving 
and personal way. And one of the things that he said that always stuck with me early on in ministry is he says, if you start throwing mud, everybody gets dirty. And what he was talking about there was sometimes people can get in the habit of mudslinging and, and really you know, maybe even winning an argument, but losing the person kind of thing where we just start attacking one another. And that was one thing that that I really appreciated about Ravi is he never attacked people. He would attack ideas, no doubt, but he was very gentle with people. And this kind of leads us into, I think, this book that we have been working on for, for quite some time now called Everyday Apologetics. In it, one of the things that you wrote that really captured me in the introduction You said, we wrote Everyday Apologetics to help you become a humble and effective advocate for the gospel. I think that that is such an important piece there, this idea that we want to be effective in our communication, but it needs to come through humility. Tell me, Chris, as as you thought about this book, and if I understand correctly, this book was really your brainchild. Tell me about how this book came about and what your desire in writing it was. Where, where does this idea of humility and effectiveness come together for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. It was actually Paul's idea years ago, and then I picked it up later uh, and brought it back to him, and we actioned it together. Uh, but I really wanted to write this based on a moment I had at one of the wonderful Apologetics Canada conferences at Northview that you put on every year. Uh, There was a speaker up there who we both admire, and he gave a brilliant lecture on eight arguments for God's existence. So clear, so straightforward, so effectively communicated, powerful. I loved it. Afterwards, I'm talking with people. I run into a woman with her teenagers and they loved it too. They're like, yeah, we loved it. But then she said something to me that really struck me. She said, I understood about 30% of it. The reason that struck me is because I thought it was very simple and clear. And it showed me, no, I live in this world of apologetics. I'm always reading. I'm always thinking about it. I'm living and breathing it. Most people aren't. And so it just showed me that, oh, I'm probably overshooting more often the everyday people who go to work and live their lives and come to church on Sunday. And so wanted to really bring it down for that person. Um, I need to jump in here real quick. Sure. Because I, I, I'm going to just out this person because I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking, it was William Lane Craig that we had there. And it was a brilliant lecture. And I think this is so interesting because one of my favorite apologetic tapes that I have, like I keep this close to my bed. One day, you know, when I die, this this will be buried with me, you know, it that I've listened to many times. And it's actually a Q&A. The whole lecture is just a Q&A that was done at a university with William Lane Craig and Ravi Zacharias. Oh, yeah. And it is absolutely brilliant because Ravi has a great way at coming in at a very everyday kind of level that that's why I call Ravi a gateway drug. He'll bring you in and then William Lane Craig's going to give you the hard stuff. He's really, he's really going to come in with the, with some heavier philosophy or, or theology, you know, not to degrade their approach, but I would actually say that those are both important. The challenge is though, is if you've been in this for a while, you get so used to the heavy stuff and the heavy hitters that you can easily start to lose your ability to communicate with those that are new to these ideas. 
Right. And so that was the whole impetus behind this project to have hopefully the clear thinking you find in William Lane Craig, but also the storytelling you find in Ravi. And the humble component is huge. Ravi had a great saying. He would say, you can't cut off someone's nose and expect them to smell the flowers. Meaning if you want to present to someone the beauty, the truth, the goodness of the Christian worldview, you can't do it in a way that's repugnant to them, in a way that's aggressive, in a way that's overly forceful, in a way that smells of pride. And so instead to have this humble approach to say, I don't have all the answers, but here's some thoughts that have been helpful to me. And to be humble enough to learn truth from the person you're engaging with and to validate their perspective and opinion and to hear them. All of that does require humility. The Apostle Paul says knowledge puffs up. We wouldn't want a book like this to puff people up with knowledge. I'm five times smarter than you now. I'm four times more right than you now. No, but instead to take it and to use it to actually serve people and love people and bless people from a posture of humility. So that's kind of what that line was after there. That's great. Now, Paul, what about for you? So I I had this wrong. I I knew that Chris was pushing this project, but you actually had this idea. Where did it develop for you, Paul? Oh, well, I know that's a great question. And and really, when Chris came to me, I was actually surprised he'd known about my idea because it had been about four or five years since it was really rumbling around in my mind. But I've used a text by another theologian. His name is Kevin Van Hooser. Some of us may know him. A book that he had written uh, with his students called Everyday Theology. And I'd use that as the text. And then as I, the more I got into the book, the more I realized he had grabbed some of his students and some of the excellent work they'd done. And I thought, I, I went and talked to my dean one day and I said, well, I've got some excellent work being done by students, one of whom, of course, was Chris Price himself doing just wonderful work. And I would even file away some of these excellent papers. And I thought, how come these are being written with a lot of research being done and yet no one's getting to read them except me and maybe a few other people who, who these students show them to. And for the most part, they're going on to other things and they're not being, nothing's being done with them. So I, I bounced the idea off a few people. Why couldn't we do this? Well, the more I thought of it, the busier I got. The other things I was doing, it just never began. It never happened. I was working on another book project myself. Anyway, near the end of that, Chris Price came to me one day and said, I know you had this idea. I think we should do it. And Chris was very generous. He just said, I will be willing to do a lot of the legwork for you, which, of course, Chris did the vast majority of the legwork on this. And we can make this happen. And then Chris shared with me his his uh, perception of the William Lane Craig lecture we're all talking about. And I was at that lecture as well. But when Chris did mention that to me, I thought, you know what? My experience has also been there is a whole generation here of lay Christians, many of whom want to share their faith with their neighbors and many of whom are out there doing it. And they run into all kinds of questions. And sometimes I hear others who had abandoned the faith because of questions about the God of the Old Testament or questions about moral evil in the world or something. And, I, and it would just pain me. And I thought, you know, there are good answers to these questions. When Chris began talking to me about that, I thought, if we can get a book together that will put information, the same kind of information that Bill Craig is working with, in a form, generous with illustrations and humorous stories and with and, and non-technical language, we can do that so these people can actually use this material. Wouldn't that be incredible? And you know what? What I'm finding already from the books just out, but the reviews I'm getting and the comments from getting from people are, I hate to say it, but they're they're raving. And they're, they're thrilled. Uh, they can't put the book down. And they're drawn in by the book. And I'm thinking, well, if this really is the future of this book, my great thanks to Chris and my great thanks to all the other authors who work so hard at it, because it will really do what we hope the God was able to do through this book. 
Well, on that note, in case people are wondering who did contribute, of course, Paul and Chris both contributed chapters. So did Jason Ballard, Mark Clark, Kirk Durskin, Michael Horner, John Morrison, Barton Preeb, and then myself as well. Now, I will make special mention that uh, that I did contribute two chapters. Now, I guess I'm you not, did. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. I, I was just about to say that, Andy. Okay. <laughs> the, clearly, I didn't read that humble part of uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. intro. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair to you, I asked for two. And actually, <laughs> to pump the tires of Apologetics Canada and some of the publishing work you've done, one of the reasons why I thought of Barton and knew that I wanted you to be a part of the project was because of the stuff you had previously published that was actually scratching that itch. Super clear, good arguments, illustrations that connect. And both of your chapters do that, which is why I really wanted two from you in there, man. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And there, there is a lot of similarity in our desire to be able to communicate again at an everyday level in a way that's going to encourage people. And I think something that's interesting about all three of us is how we came to faith and in that we were seeking for that. Now, Chris and Paul, you talk about your coming to faith in the introduction. I'm so glad that you included that into the book. Chris, you and I have a lot of connection points in how we came to the gospel. Could you just take a moment for both of you to just share how you did come to faith and how apologetics was instrumental in that? Yeah, really quickly then. I grew up in church, but I was not a believer. Uh, My family was Christian, but in high school, I really rebelled hard against it and got into a lot of drugs and a lot of that lifestyle, all it entails. And one of my hobbies during that time, because I had some insider knowledge, was to pick on Christians, to raise objections, to bludgeon them with kinds of like problems in the worldview. And uh, that was a hobby of mine during that season. Uh, Then I became a Christian in a season where my best friend's mom had cancer and I would go to prayer meetings for her to be healed as a non-believer and she passed away. And the week of her passing away, I became a believer, which is why I've been perennially. No, I don't know why I just encountered God in the middle of that. And that's also why I've been so fascinating perennially with the idea of evil and suffering as an objection for God's existence, because suffering was a part of my pre-conversion data. Like I came to faith in the midst of one of the hardest things our friend group had ever gone through. I was in the hospital rooms with her mom. I was there the whole way through. And that's right when I came to faith. And then as I, a year into faith, I read a book that systematically attacked all I had believed and had come to believe. And because I came to faith so late, I didn't check my faith. I just kept kind of reading. And it was through apologetics that I rebuilt my faith. And it got strengthened and grew as a result of studying issues raised by this book that I read early in my journey. That's great. Now, for you, Paul, from what I understand, you were born into a Christian family. But this is so interesting because your story is one of those urban myths that I hear about where they're born into the faith and then one day they start asking questions and then they go to a pastor or whatever to ask their questions and they're told to pray their doubts away. Like, tell me what, what happened? Cause I didn't know stories like yours actually existed. Yeah. 
Uh, it's, it, it is kind of funny, but because I hear some other stories and I don't know what to make of people. I don't know whether they're embellishing their stories or not. I do know exactly what happened in my case, though, so, and you know, that's why I put it in the book here. But it's important to realize that the home I, to, to just for me to say, the home I grew up in was really a wonderful home. I mean, I'm, I have nothing but respect for both my parents. They loved each other. They had a good solid marriage. They had seven children, seven of us in the family, nine, a total of nine. We had lots of vacations and lots of trips. My dad had lots of ice cream treats, lots of boat rides. My dad had a, a good sense of humor. He could be pretty stern, but he had a good sense of humor. And you know what? I had a fairly good perception of Christianity. Uh, the people around me seemed to be quite consistent as, as well. I, I didn't see a lot of hypocrisy around me, the stuff that some people talk about. I've seen a lot more since I've become a Christian than I ever noticed before. But I find it, and this is just how it works, a small few of us seem to be wired in such a way that we just can't accept things without some kind of basis for them. And I began to ask this question. It just kind of came out of the blue. I don't know if anybody planted the question in, in my mind. The question was just there. I wonder if all this is true. I know it sounded like a pretty good story to me. I wasn't like a Richard Dawkins thinking the story is full of evil and violence and bloodshed and, and a, a force for evil in the world. I, I actually had a pretty good positive perception of the story, but, but that didn't make it true. And then one day, a second question hit me, and I thought, what about all those other people around the world believing all their different things? There's Muslims, and there's Buddhists, and there's Hindus, and there's secular people. And they believe all these different philosophies of life. And they've all got their sets of reasons for them, I suppose. And I thought, I guess we believe these because we're Christians and they believe those because they're not. But I, I really, I thought, well, then why would any of us believe any of these things? I, I really had no interest in believing something just to believe. And you know what? For about six months, it began to plague me to the point where I began to realize I'm not going to be able to carry on this way. Something has got to give. There's got to be some answers. And I went through all the ones that I knew. Can I pray about this? Well, that didn't really help. Can I read the Bible? That didn't really help. They all assumed the truth of Christianity. So finally, I, I chose the most respected Christian man in our area. If I mention his name, many people would know it today, but I don't want to mention his name. I booked an appointment with him. Great guy, older man, brought me into his office, sat down. I still remember the great big old desk, but he came around the side, he sat there, a big smile on his face, and what's on your mind today? So I just laid this out to him. And he looked at me with his great big smile. I still remember it today. It's so funny, really, when I think back. Because he was such a great guy in so many ways. I really have nothing but praise for this guy except for this one answer. And he said, Paul, I'm going to tell you what you got to do. And I thought, well, this is great because I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. If he can tell me this right now, I'd love this. He said, you got to get down on your knees right now. And you need to pray that God will take those doubts away. And then he said this, and I still remember it. And you don't get up from that chair until your doubts are gone. <laughs> and I thought, number one, that was nothing like I had expected because it's pretty much what I had tried. And over the years, I thought to myself, if I'd done that, there may be a corpse in the kneeling position somewhere out in Alberta because that's where it was. Uh, I still had that chair because I, I wouldn't be able to get up, you know. So you know what? So for some reason, I think this is just what God is doing. I walked out of there. I tucked these doubts in the back of my mind. That must have just been so discouraging for you. Well, I, I walked out there. You know what I? You know what I thought to myself? I thought, you know what, if this is what he says, and he, he is a guy who is, a, who is the most experienced person in the whole Christian faith that I'd ever seen in my life, I thought to myself, maybe there aren't any answers. I thought, if he has no answer, maybe there really aren't any. That's what it did. And see, that's and really, I'm glad you raised that, because you gave me a chance to say that, Andy, because that's the danger of telling young people something like this. It's not just that they don't find answers in you. The message, the underlying implicit message that come to them is there really aren't any answers. Otherwise, he would have given them to me. This guy's been studying Christianity 30, 40, 50 years. 
just so he's got to stay. That must mean there aren't any answers. And you know what? I put that in the back of my mind. It wasn't long before I was enrolled in a Christian college and I took a course called apologetics. I still remember the course. It was life-changing for me in a way that few courses have been. It was called Christian Foundation, but it was in apologetics. And I began to read people. I read some of Ravi. I read Josh McDowell. I read Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. I read William Lane Craig. And I began to listen to tapes. And one by one, I began to see people responding to the very questions I had. And even the fact that they were talking about them and looking for answers was encouraging to me. And then I read a book by Paul Little called Know Why You Believe. And he began to lay out very simple responses and basis for things. And when I heard John Warren Montgomery on different uh, recordings responding to some of the toughest questions, I'm not sure if anybody, everybody knows who he is, but a Christian philosopher who's pretty hard-hitting. Uh, but I've met him personally, too, and he's also a, a real gentleman when you meet him pri meet him privately, but top-notch Christian philosopher. And one by one, I began to see there's foundations and there's answers to these questions. And, of course, as you get answers, you get more questions, but you start on a journey, a different kind of journey. And, and something flipped in my mind one day, and I began to realize I can believe this. I don't need to just check my brain at the door. I can actually believe this. There are good reasons for what we believe. Uh, and I began to, to sort of define my faith in that way, just as we do in the book. We try to spend our time. A number of people have defined faith. You would do in your article, too, Andy. Yeah, yeah. Trusting what you have good reason to believe is true. And this then ultimately is a catalyst not only to find answers, but your faith is strengthened. And one of the things that I noticed as well in my own journey, Paul, was how encouraged I've been in reading different apologetics and philosophical and theological books in realizing that I'm not alone, that, that my doubts and questions that I've had about life's meaning and various other questions that plagued me from a young age. At about the age of 12, I was pretty convinced that life was meaningless. And very much kind of in a Sartre kind of way, I would have waves of nausea that would come over me as I would dwell on these thoughts. I was so encouraged to know that other people were dealing with the same questions and concerns. And then the deeper I got into things, I began to realize that there is such a depth, a historical depth to Christianity that we've been asking these questions for a long time. But there is this need to continue to write and address these issues, one, because arguments get refined and new information comes and, and questions get nuanced in different ways, but also because people need to see that there's others thinking on these questions and that, you know, a book like this is so important to be able to address these questions in a way that is culturally relevant and makes sense that people can engage with. And, and for that reason, as we reflect on Ravi's death today, I think it's interesting that there will always be a need for great thinkers like Ravi to continue. And, and like yourself, Paul, I mean, you've done such an incredible job as you've taught others. And I think of Chris and myself, who've both been your students. That has to keep going, you know, as, as now Chris and I are teaching other people and bringing others along as we continue to think deeply and to address these important questions that have this effect of strengthening your faith. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Steiger. I wanted to let you know that the 10th Annual Apologetics Canada Conference was a great success and that the conference recordings are now available. The recordings not only have all the sessions from the conference, including all the breakout sessions, but some bonus material as well. We have included a special class that Daryl Bach taught for us and Wesley Huff about how we got the Bible and can we trust the Bible. 
to purchase and download the recordings, go to apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. In the book, we deal with a number of, of important questions that people are, are raising. Uh, let me just name a couple here. John Morrison talks about the nagging doubts that strengthen my faith. Paul, you talk about responding to a new kind of skeptic. Barton addresses, why is the Old Testament God so violent? Chris, you address, why does God allow suffering? Which, by the way, you do a fantastic job, and I've stolen many quotes from you, I'll be honest. Kurt deals with our faith and science in conflict. Jason deals with how can we reconcile the exclusive claims of Christ with a pluralistic culture. I deal with the question of the reasonableness of belief in God. Michael deals with how fine-tuning points powerfully to God. Mark deals with the hope of the resurrection. And then lastly, I deal with the question of the search for the meaning of life. Uh, I do think it's interesting that the chapters that us three wrote on have actually been influential from, from us coming to faith. The meaning of life question was in Does God Exist? Those were critical questions to me as I was coming to faith. But I want to ask you guys a question. Because I've got you on the podcast, I haven't had a chance to ask you this, is we're promoting this book and want to encourage people to think deeply about their faith and to be strengthened in their faith. I wanted to ask you both, what have you found to be the most influential arguments that have strengthened your faith the most? Chris, how about yourself? Yeah, when it comes to the existence of God, I've always found most compelling the idea of the fine-tuning of the universe, these various constants that are so dialed in to allow life to develop. That, to me, has been stunning. That, to me, has not just satisfied my intellect, but led to worship and awe when I think about the universe. Uh, so, it's been devotionally useful, not just intellectually helpful. And then, of course, there is, I've spent a lot of time on the resurrection of Jesus, uh, watching debates at the highest level, reading through massive tombs on it. I think the evidence for his resurrection is very strong, is very compelling. But what I'm most fascinated by currently is even an argument from miracles, which could obviously be a part of a case for the historical validity of the resurrection. But just people I've talked to, things I've experienced that seem to be miraculous, books like Lee Strobel's The Case for Miracles, books like Craig Keener's Miracles, two volumes, so many case studies of miracles all around the world. I have that book. I don't know if I'll ever get through it, but I own it. <laughs> yeah. It's some philosophical chapters. He deals with David Hume powerfully, and then he goes into just case study after case study. And books like that, I think also Eric McTaxis wrote a book called Miracles. So that lately has really been gripping my mind. And also because I've seen some things lately that seem miraculous to me, uh, like personally in my own experience. So lately that has been really gripping me and grabbing me. And I think because I know church planners and missionaries and pastors a lot I would have a lot more exposure, as I'm sure you both would, to people experiencing things that seem miraculous, like healings or dramatic encounters, that probably the average person attending church doesn't get the same kind of access to all these stories. And lately, that's really been inspiring my faith. A lot of it, too, is just the lack of a better option. It's not an argument. But emotionally, it is powerful. Even when I think about evil and suffering, every worldview has to address it. For me, I'm not going to go into it, but pantheism doesn't work. Atheism doesn't work. 
James Sires talks about three groups of worldviews, the theistic ones, the pantheistic ones, and atheistic ones. And evil and suffering eliminates atheism and pantheism for me personally. Then you're left with the theistic religions and only Christianity offers us a God who suffers with us and enters into suffering. And so that to me is, I would almost say because of evil and suffering, I'm still a Christian. Um, lack of a better option. That's such an important point. Um, what about you, Paul? What What did you find? Uh, with, with Christianity starts, of course, with the idea of God. And I've always been intrigued by the fact that many atheists take their position to be the default position. If the evidence is exactly the same for atheism and for theism, then you go with the default position, which is atheism. And I've always been intrigued by that and wondered, why would that be? Because there's a very simple principle out there called ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. We've got an entire universe sitting here. And just as we wouldn't see anything else and say, well, that probably came from nothing, or it came from without some kind of a cause. It seems to me that the very fact that we've got an entire universe here, and we've got human beings, and we've got information, and we've got uh, objective value, and we've got meaning, and we've got love, and we've got life, plant life, and animal life, and we've got all these things that even not just the fine-tuning, but the fact that they exist. If, if you're an atheist, you have to somehow take the position that they all came into being without, without any ultimate cause standing back behind there. It's a very simple proposition to say, out of nothing, nothing comes. The universe is here. There must have been something before uh, big enough to cause it. And it, it's, al- it's always made far more sense to me. I would have a really tough time accepting an atheist position, even if I was to ditch Christianity, uh, which I can't imagine at the moment. But if I ever was, I don't see how I could ever move to atheism because it asks you to make that big jump. But when it comes to uh, beyond that, I have found I spend a fair bit of time over the years on the resurrection. And I'll tell you one argument that I've found to be just so powerful to me, and that is that you go with what everybody pretty much accepts to begin with. Almost everybody accepts that this group of people at the very beginning of Christianity believed that Jesus rose from the dead. A whole bunch of them said they saw Jesus alive after he was crucified, and they were willing to die for it. Now, when you think about it, being a martyr doesn't really count for as much as some people think. A lot of people die for a lot of different things, but these martyrs were different. They were willing to die, not just for a set of ideas they've been given and come to believe. They were willing to die for their own personal claim that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. And I thought about that. I heard I got picked that one up from Gary Habermas as well, I have to say. I got that argument from him, and I began to think about that, and I realized this is a different kind of martyr. We all know liars make poor martyrs. If your claim is you've actually seen the risen Jesus— And if you're telling the truth, that means you saw him. That means he rose from the dead. So either they all went and made this claim and died knowing it was false, died for knowing it was false, or it was true and he really rose from the dead. And on the simple principle, the liars make poor martyrs, and their claim is that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. It gave me real assurance like I I had never quite had before. That yeah, there's good reason to believe he rose. Because see, for me, the question is not why do I believe Jesus rose, or why does my pastor believe Jesus rose. My question is why does anybody? Why did anybody at the beginning? Why did they believe he rose? Because they're the ones who started the whole idea. I found those two things to be uh, really powerful. I just wanted the only thing I was going to add to that is over the past eight to ten years, as I've studied our written documents, our four the four gospels. I have come to have incredible confidence 
that we are a blessed people to have four separate documents, two from very the eyewitnesses who spent time with Jesus and two others who, who had indirect contact with him as well. And they simply wrote down what they saw. And you can compare these documents and they give us a real reliable record of the life and teachings of Jesus. And the early church put out very, very strong requirements of what needed to be the case for them to be to be called scripture. They had to be eyewitnesses, had to be written early. And when people actually wanted to make up new documents, spurious ones, and have them accepted, they would claim to be eyewitnesses because everybody knew that's what you had to do. But when they were weeded out, we've ended up with this set of documents uh, that I, I find to be very reliable. And we're a blessed people to have four separate ones that we can compare. So these are giving me a lot of confidence in my own walk with God. That's wonderful. Man, I could honestly talk with you guys all day about this stuff. Uh, and often we do. Chris and I were actually talking on the phone just the other day and to pull each other apart. And man, Paul and I, you know, over the years, we have had some some great conversations and continue to. And I guess, you know, one of the things I love about this book, and I just want to encourage people with is if you are the kind of person that like to think about these sorts of things and you've got questions and you want to grow deeper in your faith, I want to encourage you to check this book out. I know there's lots of books out there, and of course, we would commend those to you, but I think that this one is so accessible that it will be an encouragement to you. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he tells Timothy to fan his faith into flame. And I could say, and I, and, I, and I think you guys would agree with me, that one of the most effective ways to fan your faith, you know, as an ember that just ignites into a flame, is this idea of dealing with your doubt, is dealing with the questions that are nagging you, right? As Paul, as you went to the, you know, the Christian leader saying, you know, here are the doubts I'm dealing with. And Paul, I'm so thankful especially just because of what a blessing you've been in so many people's lives, you know, that you didn't stop there. I mean, you easily could have just been like, oh, I guess there's no, I guess there's no good answers, right? And, and, and completely missed out on an absolute treasure trove of knowledge. In fact, Paul says this in Colossians chapter two, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's, that's what I have found. This has been the great joy for me in, in going deeper into my questions is to find a, just an absolute treasure trove of answers as you go deeper. And so I guess, man, what I want to just encourage people to fan their faith as they deal with the doubts. And I know that you will be encouraged and that there are a lot of questions in this book that are being answered in a way that, that are going to encourage you. And in fact, I, I wanted to say one other thing, um, because over the weekend I had a friend drop by because uh, her daughter, who's 10 years old, uh, was asking her questions about other faiths and what and what will happen with them. And the question that she wanted to know wasn't so much about what's going to happen to the other faiths. It was actually with herself. She said, Mommy, what if I'm wrong? 10 years old, you know? And so she was coming over and getting some books for me and whatnot. But one of the things I think so powerful about a book like Everyday Apologetics isn't just for the questions you're dealing with, but will be also about the questions maybe a friend is dealing with or a daughter or a son or a mom and dad. There are going to be people in your life that have got questions, and this is going to uh, resource you to be able to be an, an encouragement to them. So, on that note, guys, I just want to give you one last chance to say something if you had any, if I've inspired any thought that you want to add to that. And then also, if you could just tell our listeners, where could they go to get a hold of this resource? What this book represents to me is our, our best shot with, with a wonderful group of authors who've done some good work. 
and trying to address the serious questions in a serious way, but do it in a highly accessible way. My prediction is you'll be drawn into the book right from page one or two, uh, and you'll find you're able to understand it and enjoy the uh, ideas that you come across and appreciate them, but in the, in the end, be equipped so that when you talk with your neighbor across the fence, ideas in this book you'll be able to use. That's my, that was our number one heart and soul for, for writing, for getting this book together. And I have just the highest appreciation for the work of you, Andy, Chris, and all the other authors we put, we brought in here. Cause they have really, they've really come to the party and done exactly what we, what we had envisioned for them to do. Yeah, I love that. I don't really have anything to add to that other than I do value the practical application that is interspersed through some of the chapters and obviously the stories and the humor. And uh, we brought in contributors who were well uh, versed in telling stories and understood the questions of the day. And so I'm, I'm thrilled with the end result. And people can get it on Amazon.ca. That's the best place, but Amazon.com as well. You can go Lexum Press, which is the publishing branch of Logos Bible Software. They published it. So it's also on their bookstore, their site. You can find it there. But Amazon.ca is the place to go, I think. Well, I think the proper way of ending a podcast like this is just to thank both of you. Thank you, Paul, for the idea. Thank you, Chris, for grabbing hold of that idea and and working together to bring it to fruition. Uh, You both worked incredibly hard. I also appreciate your edits. There are many times you sent things back saying, we want to make this even more clear. We want to make this even more accessible. And I think it has really paid off. I know there's a lot of people that are going to be blessed by this work. So thank you guys for your hard work. And we look forward to seeing how it's going to impact the kingdom. On that note, we want to thank you listeners for tuning in to Apologetics Canada. We will see you next time with more things to think about. <laughs>